Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Cameron Khan. Cameron is founder and CEO of Blue Dot, as well as a professor of medicine and public health at the University of Toronto. Cameron, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It is really, really exciting to chat with you. So you originally came on our radar as a result of a Wired article that came out not too long ago about how your company, uh, Blue Dot, used AI to be among the first to warn about the coronavirus. I, I'm, yeah, you probably have much more precise words around exactly what you, the role that your company is playing in that. But, you know, let's start out by having you share a little bit about your background and, you know, what brought you to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to this problem of early identification and warning of diseases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, Maybe I'll start out by just providing a little bit of background about myself and ultimately what was the motivation for this work. So, you know, I'm a practicing infectious disease physician. I, you know, still was just in patient, seeing a bunch of patients this morning with tuberculosis and, and managing that. And, um, and uh, I'm originally from Toronto. Uh, you know, I did my, uh, my medical school training here, uh, but I specialized in infectious diseases and public health. And I was down in New York finishing up my training Um in 2002, and then moved back to Toronto just before the SARS outbreak happened. So Toronto, as I mentioned, is is uh, where I grew up and and home. Um, when I got here, uh, you know, shortly after arriving, we had this outbreak of the the SARS coronavirus uh, 17 years ago, and and uh, it was something that. We didn't really even know what it was until it showed up in our hospitals in our city. And as a physician specialized in infectious diseases and in public health, um, you know, if I didn't know what this was, I don't know how anyone else would know what it was. Mm. And so it really um, became apparent that we need better systems to be able to detect and anticipate how infectious diseases might emerge and spread. And we know that they do that really quickly. The, the reason why this was such a profound event for me personally was, um, you know, I got to see the impact of SARS on our city uh, really in an in a up-close and, and kind of personal way. Um, one of my colleagues got infected with SARS, and, uh, and we had other healthcare workers who got SARS and who actually died. We had 44 deaths. We had an outbreak involving over 250 people that went on for four very long months. Oh, wow. Um, and so you can just imagine the amount of mental and emotional uh, fatigue that sets into your healthcare workforce when day in and day out you're trying to confront this thing. There's a lot of personal protective equipment and gear that you got to be working and wearing in your environment. Um, and, you know, there's always the concern that you know, would you potentially get this next? And are you going to take it back home to your family? Um, so there was certainly an enormous uh, uh, amount of, of concern there. We saw our hospitals completely overwhelmed. They went into lockdown. All elective procedures were canceled. Our public health system was overwhelmed. And even the city took on a different feel. It was um, one where, uh, you know, people stopped traveling to Toronto 
Um, we didn't have the same kinds of uh, people gathering. You know, there were billions in financial losses to the city. So this was a really profound event. And if we take a look at the big picture, Toronto was just one of dozens of cities around the world that were going through uh, this outbreak, Singapore and Hong Kong and Taipei and others. In fact, these are some of the cities right now that are experiencing mm-hmm. um, outbreaks uh, of this new coronavirus so uh, for me, I think one of the key things really at that point was we need a better system. We need a better mm-hmm. system to be able to detect outbreaks more quickly. Uh, we need a better system to be able to anticipate how they would spread. And we need a mechanism to be able to rapidly communicate that information. Was Toronto unique among North American cities in the impact of the SARS virus? I, I remember obviously hearing about it at the time, but it didn't feel nearly as personal I'm based in St. Louis, but travel extensively to New York and San Francisco and other cities in the U.S. So there were actually dozens of imported cases of SARS into North America. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just so happened, and this is a point that maybe I'll come back to later on, that in Toronto, one of the cases led to a whole bunch of other cases and triggered an outbreak. Mm -hmm. Uh, In many of the other cities, the cases were identified, quickly isolated, and there wasn't secondary transmission that went on to lead to a broader outbreak. So Vancouver had cases in Canada, and there are a bunch of uh, U.S. cities that had travelers who were infected with SARS, but it did not trigger uh, an ongoing outbreak. So Toronto was um, uh, one of those places where we had uh, an outbreak that everyone heard about uh, simply because it just we had case after case going on over a four-month period. And you refer to it as the SARS coronavirus. Um, what's the relationship between SARS and coronavirus? Or may, maybe, you know, just define coronavirus. Is it a broad mm-hmm. category of, of viruses? So coronaviruses, there are sort of two groups. First of all, the corona part of coronavirus is largely because of the way the virus looks. It has these, it almost looks a bit like, uh, you know, a child drawing a picture of the sun. Uh, with these uh, kind of surface proteins that go out. And there are two broad categories. Coronaviruses can just cause the common cold. So that's these are not that unusual. But there are novel coronaviruses, new coronaviruses that may have made the leap from animals into humans. And there are two other ones prior to this. SARS back in 2003, which we think probably came from civet cats, maybe originally from bats to an intermediate animal and then over to humans. And then MERS, which is the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, that really came on the scene in 2012, has mostly been in the uh, uh, Middle East, around uh, centered mostly around Saudi Arabia. And that's another coronavirus that's thought to actually originate from camels and then has spread to humans and causes severe respiratory illnesses as well. The animal that is the, uh, uh, the source of this new coronavirus is still being evaluated. You know, the pangolin is a, one of the candidate animals that is being discussed. But genetically, this is, you know, almost 80 percent uh, similar to the SARS coronavirus. So they sort of fall into the same family. You could almost think of them a bit like being cousins, if you will, uh, related in, in many ways genetically. And so the... Virus uh, came about via mutation, uh, I would imagine. Uh, is that the right term? Is that how these viruses get started? 
Not, not necessarily a mutation per se, but what happens is they have a, what we call a zoonotic spillover. And what I mean by that is this virus is found in an animal. A human comes in mm. contact with the virus, and it just so happens that the virus is sufficiently adapted to be able to replicate in human cells and then ultimately become a human pathogen or a human disease. Um, so that is, you know, this is similar to what we saw during the SARS coronavirus. In fact, there's a bit of deja vu with this story here, which is if we look back to 2003, this was a pneumonia that developed in association with um, a presumably exposure to a live animal market that then triggered that outbreak. And here we are again, 17 years later, with a, another coronavirus associated with a live animal market that has now mm -hmm. uh, created the next uh, outbreak. Uh, and this one has, you know, some similarities and some differences from SARS, um, but certainly is a much larger outbreak. It has now surpassed SARS, uh, you know, in many fold in terms of number of cases. And even now the total number of deaths has surpassed uh, what we saw in 2003 with uh, the SARS outbreak. Talk a little bit about the role of early warning uh, yeah. and the importance of or the motivation for what you're doing at Blue Dot. Mm -hmm. well, let me just tell you a little bit about the, the kind of evolution. So first of all, um, as I mentioned, I'm a practicing physician. I'm an epidemiologist by training. So after the SARS outbreak ended, uh, you know, one, one of the things that uh, first came to my mind was, let's not do this again. Let's think about another way that perhaps we could better anticipate this. And I spent the next 10 years as a scientist and as a professor at the University of Toronto studying outbreaks, trying to understand, are there ways that we could better anticipate how these diseases spread around the world? Now, we know that ultimately, these diseases that affect humans are spread by the movements of humans and the long distant movements of people. Um, this generally occurs through commercial air travel around the world. And this network, which is, you know, it's, it's not even 100 years old uh, of commercial air travel, has really transformed how people move around the world and ultimately how microbes move around the world. So I spent, you know, the next 10 years studying that and realized from various outbreaks that you actually could start to potentially anticipate how these diseases would spread. I, I started working with um, billions of anonymized uh, passenger flight itinerary tickets uh, and sales and those types of data. You know, it kind of dawned on me that uh, I could learn and understand that seat 16-4 or 16-B or something was available and 16-A was taken. There had to be some kind of data system that was accounting for all of these types of transactions. And after studying a little bit of the information systems in the airlines, um, realized that um, there were uh, billions of uh, ticket sales data that actually could be utilized to understand how the whole world is connected and how people are moving around the planet. So after doing that for 10 years uh, and realizing that there was some rhyme and reason to all of this, um, started thinking more and more about how do we move quickly. In the academic world, um, you know, when we publish in the scientific literature, it's a pretty lengthy process. And it often takes months or, you know, maybe even in some cases, even could take years to uh, conduct a scientific study, generate the results, 
submit it for peer review by the scientific community, have that reviewed. If the article is rejected, do it again. If it's accepted, it goes to the editors, they review it, and so on and so forth. And that's a fairly lengthy process. Um, but of course, the diseases don't wait for the reviewers to uh, review the science. Uh, they spread in hours and days. And so we needed a better system, one that was more agile to be able to respond to this. And that was, for me, the motivation for uh, founding Blue Dot and creating this as a digital health company. Um, I will clearly say I am not a serial entrepreneur who's done this 20 times. I had never even imagined creating a company. If someone had said that to me when I was going through medical school, I would have thought I was some kind of joke. But ultimately, really, what I was trying to do was to solve a problem. And, uh, you know, we have a number of organizations here in Toronto, maybe similar in, in, uh, in St. Louis or other parts of the United States that are really here to start supporting um, an entrepreneurial spirit uh, amongst those in the university system to say, well, maybe you can take a leap of faith and maybe you can accelerate that discovery and scale the implementation of discovery uh, using business as a vehicle to do that. So, so that was the motivation behind launching Blue Dot. And what I will say is that we have been for the last six and a half years building uh, what we call a global early warning system for infectious diseases. And I'll be happy to, you know, uh, uh, um, to kind of describe what that is and how we use data and things like machine learning and, and other types of um uh, analytical approaches and and pieces of technology to build a system that can detect outbreaks faster than we have in the past, uh, assess how they might spread around the world and what the consequences might be, and then actually generate information to disseminate it. So we're literally spreading insights and knowledge about the disease faster than the disease is spreading itself. So that's really been our overarching uh, approach uh, in in terms of how we have been thinking about infectious diseases, not just big outbreaks like the current coronavirus, but, you know, we're dealing with the resurgence of measles. We're dealing with, you know, Lyme disease expanding. We are, we're dealing with a world, unfortunately, a world of infectious diseases where outbreaks and these threats are becoming more frequent. The outbreaks are becoming larger and they're having larger and larger and more disruptive consequences. Let's definitely talk a little bit more about how your technology is applied to identifying and, and warning about the spread of these diseases. You mentioned that one of the data sets you started looking at was this airline uh, data. I can imagine how that can tell you a lot about the spread of the disease, uh, a lot more than it would tell you, help you identify new outbreaks. Uh, mm-hmm. So presumably there are other data sets that you're using and, and have access to, to to help with that? Absolutely. Let me break it down into kind of four chunks, if you will. The first thing is surveillance, and it's picking mm-hmm. up information about what's happening and what threats may be occurring. And those threats could come from Mother Nature. They could come from accidents in a lab. They could come from deliberate acts of terrorism. So there are many different ways that outbreaks it can be, begin. So I'm going to come back and I'll take a deeper dive into surveillance and sort of detection of threats. The second piece is understanding dispersion. And, you know, as I mentioned, humans are the vectors that move these diseases around the world now in these, you know, 
planes uh, that fly all across the planet. Um, we have the ability to travel in ways that are completely unprecedented across the entire, you know, circumnavigate the entire globe in, you know, 24 hours. The third piece after dispersion is impact. What is the impact of a disease spreading from geography A to geography B? Does that disease, does that particular microbe of the virus, does it have the ability to trigger a new outbreak or is it going to arrive in an area and just fizzle out and disappear? The, the metaphor I might use there is if you think about outbreaks and infectious disease threats is a bit like a fire and the fires, you know, have embers flying off them and those embers might land on concrete and fizzle out and nothing happens or they might land on, you know, a pile of dry leaves and now you got the next fire going on. Outbreaks are really the same. So what we are using, and I'll talk about this, are using things like machine learning and AI to detect outbreaks faster. We are using other data sets on how populations move around the world, including air travel data, including, you know, uh, in large numbers, anonymized data from hundreds of millions of mobile devices and location data around the world. We're using data from satellites, for example, as well as a whole bunch of other data in real time to understand does this microbe in this geography at this time have the ingredients to trigger an outbreak or not? You know, I'm here in Toronto right now in February, and it's about minus 20 outside. They're minus 20 Celsius. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but, but it's pretty darn cold. So <laughs> you gotta, if you've got a disease that's spread through a mosquito or a tick, it's not going anywhere right now. Mm -hmm. But if it was in Singapore or somewhere else, uh, you know, maybe it's 30 Celsius there right now and humid and, and so forth. Um, that might be the right environment at the right time for, the, for an outbreak to, uh, to propagate. Got it. And the fourth piece is ultimately about communication. How do we get information into the hands of people in a way that it does not overwhelm them and is consumable and meaningful to them? So this is really important. I'll just say a couple words about it is, you know, if we keep sending everyone information about every threat in the world, you know, we, we result with information overload. We just basically overwhelm people mm -hmm. and then they just start to tune it out because it's not relevant to them. There's a professor at NYU, Clay Shirky is his name, and he, he sometimes talks about, um, hey, we shouldn't be talking about information overload. We should be talking about filter failure. And so we often think about that. Well, what do I need to know in Toronto that's relevant to me right now? If it's relevant to someone in, uh, in Beijing, well, they should get the information that's relevant to them. I don't need to know that right now. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that um, as we sort of go through. But why don't I start out by just describing a little bit on the surveillance side and how we gather information about uh, outbreaks and threats. Please. So one of the things that we learned during the SARS outbreak was that if we rely on government agencies to report information about outbreaks, we may not be getting the information that we need in the most timely manner. Um, and that is, even though there is a treaty called the International Health Regulations that countries around the world are bound to, um, they, you know, this is a treaty based on goodwill. There's no enforcement. Mm -hmm. The idea is that if, if countries have said, okay, if we're having an unusual outbreak, we're going to report it rapidly to the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. 
Is the issue more that there's, you know, dysfunction within the information gathering and collecting or more that they, you know, are protecting their interests by not uh, communicating about it? It it could be a combination of the above, and it depends. In, mm-hmm. in a country that has got really limited resources and a weak public health and a healthcare system, it may be that they don't actually even know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you can imagine, in other situations, a country realizes that once it makes a statement about an outbreak that is uh, serious, there will inevitably be serious economic consequences that follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... It, it, gives, I can understand and appreciate that it would give uh, some pause to, you know, reporting. And so that could lead to some delays. And when you're dealing with an outbreak and, and putting it out, it's just like a fire. The sooner you know about it, the, the, the better the chances are that you can actually extinguish it. Mm-hmm. So what we learned there was that we can't rely just on official information coming from governments. And so there has been an entire field that has developed to say, um, to, to really realize that the internet itself can be an important medium for gathering epidemic intelligence or information about outbreaks around the world. And it comes through all these different forums. Um, local journalists from around the world sometimes write about things that they're witnessing or hearing in their own backyard. And it may be that that actually is published even before the government is aware of it or before the government has said anything about it. Um, there are forums that have been developed for the public health and healthcare community around the world to contribute information about things that they may be seeing uh, in their own area. They can do so anonymously. They can provide their information. Um, but all of this information is coming in a very unstructured form. It's in text and it's in Chinese and Portuguese and Spanish and Russian and Arabic and so forth. Mm-hmm. So if you basically had a human review this. Well, first of all, it wouldn't be possible. There's just the amount of information is is massive. Um, and you'd need a team of 100 people to be reading in all these languages and kind of filtering through, is this relevant? Does this make sense? Does it not? Um, and so one of the things that we did first, you know, at Blue Dot and started doing um, is building a system that can gather intelligence from all these disparate sources to gather all the information that is being reported officially by government agencies around the world, like the CDC, like the World Health Organization, but also organizations that uh, are responsible for animal health, like the World Organization for Animal Health, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, because many of these diseases have their origins in animals. They start in animals and spill over into humans. So, So on one hand, we're gathering all that official information, but then we have developed an engine that is looking for over 150 different diseases around the world, plus syndromes like, you know, an unusual pneumonia or a a hemorrhagic fever uh, or some other undiagnosed illness. Um, And so we have built an engine that is basically looking at over 100,000 articles online every day in 65 languages, looking for outbreaks with involving over 150 d- diseases. And, and it's doing this every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. Does this mean that a disease has to be well-defined uh, in order for you to identify it? So there's two ways we do it. One is we actually look at the name of the disease. And then there are there's the kind of microbiological name of the disease. And then there's mm-hmm. kind of the lay name of the disease, you know. 
And then there are uh, sometimes syndromes where it's just somebody had a respiratory syndrome or a pneumonia of unclear origin. And we'll talk about that in relation to this coronavirus. So we've, got, we've developed a whole taxonomy that actually is kind of mapped out what all these things are. And then we basically kind of have our system scanning all these various different sources, uh, looking for those keywords. Um, but as you could, and, uh, and also translating that information using things like Google Translate into English. But as you can imagine, uh, you know, the, the, the joke we sometimes use is, I didn't know there was a heavy metal band called Anthrax until our system started kind of picking up stuff. <laughs> but but that's, that's not, you know, relevant to us. Right. The very noisy world out there. It is pun, uh, you know, partially intended, I imagine there, a noisy world. And, and it's a signal to noise problem, right? So we've mm-hmm. got, all right, well, we have this massive haystack. Uh, where do we find the needles in the haystack? And so ultimately what we've done is we've used natural language processing and machine learning. And so on one hand, we've had our subject matter experts, our uh, epidemiologists and our physicians and so forth, classifying this information manually thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and then ultimately using machine learning and natural language processing to then start to learn and replicate human behavior around, well, look, that's about the heavy metal band anthrax. Let's put that into the category we don't need to know about it. Or this is about a new antibiotic or a new vaccine being developed for anthrax. Okay, that's interesting, and it's about anthrax, but it's not actually about an outbreak. And then here are, you know, anthrax uh, outbreak is happening in Mongolia at this point in time. That's important. So we've done a lot of that classification and ultimately then use machine learning and natural language processing to uh, be able to organize and structure vast amounts of data that is not really possible for a human to do. Mm -hmm. So just to say, with respect to this coronavirus outbreak, what happened uh, on December 31st, I guess when people were perhaps thinking about their plans for for New Year's Eve and, and, uh, you know, welcoming a new decade, our engine picked up uh, some articles in Chinese early morning, December 31st, that talked about a pneumonia. um, And it seemed to be associated with this market uh, where uh, seafood and live animals were sold in Wuhan and that there were 27 cases and it was a pneumonia uh, without a known cause. Didn't seem to be kind of uh, typical causes you might see uh, for a pneumonia. And so, you know, at that moment, it had translated into English and the machine flagged this as out of these 100,000 or so articles a day, it generally presents us with about five things to pay attention to. Okay. And so we then, so, so the machine, AI, and, the, and, and this engine is not supplanting human decisions, it's augmenting human decisions. So it kind of presents it to us as the subject matter experts. And then we look at them and, and have a brief conversation. And we said here was, okay, we don't know that this is actually going to become really big, but it has the same ingredients as what we saw during the SARS outbreak 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Pneumonia, unclear origin, seems to be associated with an animal market. We've seen this before. So let's pay attention to it. So the, the, the thing that we did ultimately next is after our team of experts looked at it, and then we just make a decision, does this look plausible or is this something unusual about the story? 
and we need to corroborate it before we go any further. So it seemed plausible to us. Once we actually put it into our overall, you know, um, uh, our large repository of data, this is where GIS comes in. This is like geographic information system. So once the location of Wuhan came in, our team of geographers have developed a system that can identify the locations of nearby airports to see how far away they are, where might travelers go to, which airport would they choose. I won't bore you with all the details of the modeling there, um, but uh, ultimately to say is that we can assign certain probabilities that people are going to use various airports, and then we automatically then, within a second, connect to the entire world's ticket sales data to understand how travelers are moving from that location to destinations all over the world. The this analysis or this this last step that you're describing isn't based on kind of historical flows, but you're looking at kind of real time actual tickets out of Wuhan or whatever the closest airport is to other airports. So there's a combination of data that comes with flights and, and information on dispersion. And we kind of work with three different types of data. Number one is data on the flight schedules of the actual aircraft in advance. So if you're mm -hmm. booking a ticket, you can book up to a year in advance. So we can see all the flight schedules that are happening. Second is the actual passenger itineraries themselves. But those data come after the passenger has traveled and then the airline compiles it. So there is a little bit of a lag and a little bit of a delay there. And then we also work with data that's anonymized. Uh, again, I want to underscore that but it's about 400 million mobile devices and the locations of the mobile devices um, because we know that not everyone necessarily travels by air, but you know, populations may move across land borders or in other ways. And so the, the three different types of data sets allow us to gauge and understand how populations may be moving. So in this instance, what we did was we connected to our flight and passenger flight itinerary data to see what are the typical flows of travelers from that location at that particular time of year to destinations around the world. Um, we did that, and these are also, there are about 4 billion tickets per year, and it's all the various connection points. It doesn't, it's not following the aircraft, it's actually uh, following the movements of the travelers through all of the connecting points uh, across this network. So we did that, um, and within a second had been able to identify all of the final destinations that receive the most travelers. Um, and then the last stage that sort of kicks in here was we, once we actually have done those analyses, the places that are receiving the highest volume of travelers are ones that we push a notification to that gives them a synopsis of what has been reported and what we know about it at this point in time. In a sense, we're just literally trying to spread the information ahead of the disease so that the health officials in those locations uh, would have an early warning, the healthcare providers in hospitals could get an early warning, and even certain businesses, and we tend to work with airlines, could also receive notification because, again, they're an important stakeholder in, 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 uh, when it comes to various outbreaks. So, so that's kind of a bit of a continuum of going from early detection, human verification and assessment, connection to information on the world's air travel, identifying the destinations that are most at risk, 
and then literally pushing the information to our clients. And we do that in three real categories. One are government agencies that work in public health, that work in national defense, national security, and even in agriculture, uh, because many diseases, uh, you know, African swine fever is a good example of a disease that doesn't affect humans, but can really have a huge impact on swine and can affect food security and have other uh, economic consequences. So that's one set of clients in different branches of government. Uh, as a physician who is practicing and who gets called down to the emergency room to see patients, I know what's really important and where we don't really have a robust system today is that we need to get this intelligence not just to the public health department, but to the emergency department, because that's where patients go. Uh, and we assume that our you know, physicians and nurses and other frontline healthcare workers are going to be able to recognize diseases that they may have never seen before and maybe never heard of before. Mm-hmm. But that is a very big ask. It is <laughs> difficult to ask your frontline healthcare workers to be able to do that um, when they've never seen these diseases before. But we rely upon them to do that because we need them to do so so they can protect themselves so they don't end up you know, getting infected or dying in the line of work, that they can better protect their patients. Uh, they can prevent outbreaks in hospitals that can paralyze the whole hospital like we saw during SARS. And even they can prevent outbreaks from spilling over into the community that could cripple an entire city. So there's a lot that weighs on, just like when we talked about SARS earlier, Toronto was one place where we had a big outbreak, but many of the other places, the cases were quickly identified, isolated, and no secondary cases uh, actually happened in those instances. And so it's really important for us to be able to um, make sure that our healthcare workers have these kinds of, uh, of insights. Does your system make any attempts to project forward, uh, you know, from today, let's say, given what we know about the coronavirus, what's likely to happen mm-hmm. uh, over, you know, relatively longer periods of time, uh, you know, weeks, months, that type mm-hmm. of thing? I well, imagine it's difficult to do given you have uh, all different scenarios and interventions taking place, but. Yeah. Well, let me just say, we're not just really focusing on detection. We're focusing on anticipation. We want to be able to help um, uh, individuals and organizations anticipate uh, what might happen next. So when I think back to the early detection of the coronavirus on December 31st, we had actually published in the scientific literature the cities that we had identified as being at greatest risk of spread of this coronavirus. So Uh, That, if you actually go to the Journal of Travel Medicine, it was published on January 14th. And what we had actually identified was a lot of the cities that were the first cities to receive the coronavirus as it spread out of China. Tokyo, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Seoul, Taipei, etc. And that list is there um, to demonstrate what we had uh, analyzed using our data. So in that case, we are looking forward and trying to project and anticipate Today, because, you know, you highlighted that the situation is so fluid and it is so rapidly evolving and adapting day to day, you can have thousands of new cases. Um, And uh, so this is where we have been working more with um, 
these you know hundreds of millions of mobile device location data that are aggregated again anonymized aggregated but enabling us to in near real time understand how populations may be moving around the world so we can better anticipate how the disease might spread so we are doing that on an ongoing basis but it's a bit like you know if you think of weather forecasting we might get uh, a pretty good chance of understanding what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after but if we start talking weeks or months ahead, you know, our precision is not going to be as great because there's an enormous amount of stochasticity and randomness that happens. And um, so ultimately, what we really tend to do is focus on iterative uh, short term projections and ones that are adaptive to an evolving situation, you know, rapidly evolving uh, circumstances. So uh, so we are always looking ahead and trying to identify and anticipate what some of the next moves might be, because ultimately the health community has a finite amount of resources, health and human resources. And we've got to think about where we use those resources in the way that has maximum benefit, either to prevent the spread of a disease or failing that at least slow the spread of the disease down. You mentioned that uh, anticipation is one of the things that you're trying to do. Does that include identifying outbreaks before they happen, kind of the the initial outbreaks before they happen, um, you know, whether it's uh, conditions that become, you know, ripe for the transfer of a disease from an animal to humans, that kind of thing? Well, let me just say that in terms of anticipating outbreaks before they happen, there's different levels. There is the anticipating the emergence of a brand new disease that hope no one has ever seen before. We do not do that. There are other groups um, that are out there in the world cataloging viruses in nature and trying to think about, well, where might the next outbreak occur of a disease we've never seen before? That's obviously incredibly difficult work and very, very difficult to anticipate. But what we do is we do anticipate the next place that may experience an outbreak before it has. So let me just give you an example going back to 2016, <clears throat> excuse me, and the um, Zika virus outbreak. Uh, you might remember that was one of the last uh, big global public health emergencies. And what we had done back in that outbreak was working with a number of some of our academic colleagues, we had mapped out where uh, Zika virus activity was most likely to be occurring in Brazil. And I want to explain when I say most likely, why would I say that? Well, when you have a brand new disease emerge on the scene, you don't typically have a diagnostic test for that because it's a brand new disease and you still have to develop it. So in many cases, when you're dealing with a new disease, you don't actually have the ability to understand where it is where it is. And we see the same situation here in China. We have some understanding, but there's a lot of information we don't have. So in the case of Zika virus, we had to combine data on the mosquito that transmits Zika virus on temperature that would identify where the virus was most likely to circulate because the environment was optimal for that transmission to occur. When we did that, we looked at all the locations around uh, those particular areas and how travelers were moving to different parts of the world. This is important because Zika virus is a disease of primates and humans, so the virus replicates in the human body, in the bloodstream, and when a traveler goes to another location, they infect a mosquito, and that mosquito 
When the mosquito bites them, the mosquito becomes infected and the mosquito then transmits it onwards. The mosquitoes didn't fly from Brazil to Florida, for example. Um, sure. It was the people that did and infected the mosquitoes locally. So we had mm -hmm. mapped that out in 2016 and published that in The Lancet, um, which is one of the scientific journals, uh, British scientific journal, in early 2016. And I had identified that Florida was really a place that looked like it was at high risk of experiencing an outbreak uh, because of the large numbers of travelers coming from areas of Brazil that were most likely where Zika was circulating because it had the mosquito that transmits Zika virus because the temperature was optimal for local and out local outbreak. And we had done that six months before the outbreak actually appeared in Florida. So that's an example of being able to anticipate something before it actually happens. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll just say about that is there are instances now where we can sometimes infer based on some of our data and analytics that outbreaks might be happening in places that haven't yet even identified them. Uh, so when we see lots of connectivity of travelers between locations where there's an outbreak occurring in one place and not in another, and some of those environments are places that have weak public health systems, they're poor countries, we can sometimes identify or, or recognize that there is a, a high risk of an outbreak occurring in that location, um, even if it's not necessarily recognized. So it helps us direct our surveillance, uh, on the ground surveillance activities to places that are um, at significant risk. Uh, there's some criticism of the the approach that you're taking from the perspective of, you know, that predictions like this are, are, are difficult and maybe you got lucky a few times and that, you know, it's kind of reported very broadly as AI being the solution to, you know, epidemics, pandemics. You know, I'm wondering, you know, both if you have any general comments on those types of critiques, but more specifically, what are the limitations of the approaches that you're bringing to bear uh, on these challenges? Mm -hmm. Well, let me just say that um, I, I, you know, we certainly by no means would claim that AI is, you know, got this problem solved. It's just one of the tools in the toolbox. That's all. It's just another. It's not the the end. It's the means to. It's it's a mechanism that we can make sense of data in ways that um, if we did it manually it would be incredibly labor intensive and really slow and, and inefficient. You know, as I said, when it comes to surveillance, um, if, we, if we did this manually, we'd need 100 people or more doing this around the clock. Well, we have mm -hmm. four, four people and a machine that managed to do this. And we're tracking not, every, not only, you know, how uh, this COVID-19, this coronavirus outbreak is spreading, but we're also mapping continuously now all these other 150 different diseases around the world. So in the way humans can get distracted, a machine doesn't necessarily have to be distracted. So it is a tool that can help us. It doesn't, it's not the mm -hmm. solution. It doesn't solve every problem. I think the other thing in terms of limitations, and it is very important, is that, you know, machine learning requires large amounts of data to then actually make sense of, of this and be able to predict um, based on observing various outcomes over and over again, it requires data that is structured appropriately uh, so the machine can consume it and develop predictive algorithms. But when we are dealing with these types of infectious disease threats, there often isn't, the data is often not there. 
Um, and so we have to use a combination of approaches. Again, this is why I say machine learning and other kind of AI modalities are just another tool in the toolbox. Um, so we may have to re resort to epidemiological approaches and different types of models uh, versus machine learning models because we don't have hundreds of thousands of observations that we can then um, use to, 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 to develop a, a model. So, so I think it is, um, I would 100% agree, it is not the silver bullet. This doesn't do everything, but it is a powerful tool that allows us to derive insights from vast amounts of data uh, and do so in ways that are far more efficient than humans can do and to allow us to do things in a scalable and timely manner. Ultimately, what we have trained our system to do today when it comes to surveillance, and we're exploring many different other applications for machine learning, but in this case, what we're talking about is processing vast amounts of data that humans couldn't possibly do realistically because we have to sleep and we don't speak 100 languages. And, and But ultimately, these are, I would describe them as relatively low complexity tasks, but they're incredibly high volume and there's an enormous amount of them. So we can just simply train a machine to replicate our judgment. We don't have to give it a set of rules to tell it if this, then that. We can just basically classify things over and over again and, and ultimately have the machine kind of replicate uh, our judgment, if you will, about how we classify something. And, and then ultimately do a whole bunch of other things, eliminate duplicates, tell us that these stories are speaking about the same thing, uh, you know, so that we're not dealing with 100,000 articles, we're dealing with five events. So there are lots of ways that um, these types of tools can augment our ability to uh, detect, assess, and respond to, to these threats. Kind of tangentially, what have you learned about building an organization that depends on these two highly skilled you know, skill sets, the physicians and epidemiologists and the, you know, data scientists, machine learning engineers, uh, and getting them to work well together and, and building systems that kind of capture, you know, what both are good at. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a really, really good point. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I think it, it tells us a couple of things. And, and you know, we, we've heard this many other times, but it really rings true to me that diversity is essential to tackle these kinds of complex problems. And I don't necessarily mean, you know, ethnic diversity or, or gender. Uh, I'm talking about more broadly diversity of mindset, the diversity of skills, the diversity of perspectives, um, and even the languages that we speak. And I don't mean, you know, uh, in French or Spanish, but, you know, some of our mathematicians will will speak in differential equations as they think through a problem. And physicians have their own language and epidemiologists speak another language. And what you need is you need to bring people like this together in one place where they can learn from one another. And this doesn't happen overnight. It happens over years. Um, and so, You mentioned, I think, in our pre-call uh, conversation that you've got even veterinarians on your team. That's correct. Yeah. Physicians who practice and specialize in infectious diseases, veterinarians, epidemiologists, ecologists that think about insects and other uh, diseases that affect, uh, you know, non-human species. Um, we have geographers 
a data scientist, engineers, software developers, designers, et cetera. And so it is, we are a deliberately eclectic group of uh, people with a very diverse set of skills because we can't throw a thousand physicians into the room and solve this problem or a thousand epidemiologists or a thousand data scientists. It requires that diversity of skills. So that I think is something that is uh, an important and kind of a special feature of this organization. And we all operate under one roof. So we are not, you know, working remotely through email. We are literally solving problems face to face day in and day out. Um, And so six and a half years later, we have really learned about each other's perspectives and have become quite good at integrating these various perspectives to tackle problems in ways that maybe have never been approached before uh, and develop these kinds of solutions. It also happens to say is enormously fun, if that's the word I should use, (laughs) just to say, just imagine, you know, people like hackathons, we're like one big hackathon, you know, day in and day out, um, constantly iterating, you know, you have an ecologist speaking to a data scientist, to a physician, to a designer one day, and the next day, it's a completely different mix, because there's another solution or another problem has to be tackled. Um, so uh, the amount of peer-to-peer learning that happens is, is pretty incredible, uh, but also a, l- a lot of creativity comes um, at the intersection of all these different disciplines uh, that uh, you know, maybe have never been explored before. Awesome. Well, Cameron, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, share a bit about what you're up to, and uh, you know, frankly, educate us a bit on coronavirus and how AI is helping to identify and uh, prevent its dispersion. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sam. I appreciate uh, the uh, the opportunity to to chat uh, in this forum today. So, thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.